Let's try an experiment. See if you recognize these famous Americans. Now, here's your clue. His name is George M. Dallas. And how about this gentleman, Levi P. Morton? Anyone? Charles C. Dawes? Henry Wilson? Thomas Hendricks? Okay, well, they were all U.S. vice presidents. Now, let's try some other famous Americans. Anyone? Milk? Yes, belonging to George H.W. and Barbara Bush. And this? Sonny and Bo. The Obama's dog, Sonny and Bo. Uh, how about... Oh, that's FDR's dog. Franklin Roosevelt, Scotty, Falla, good. Not to disparage those who've served as vice presidents, but the role of a first dog has become a tough act to follow. After all, they make better photo ops. They have more access to the president. And if they make number one on the Oval Office rug, it's only a two-day story. I'm Bud Bacone. Put on your A-pass as we tour a couple of centuries' worth of presidential dogs. from the AKC Archives. January 20th, 2017, Inauguration Day. If you happen to be wandering around the White House, you'd notice something very different. No dog. Unusual, but not unprecedented. More about that later. It's worth mentioning that over the centuries, the White House might have felt more like an ark than a home. This building in its time has been home to sheep, horses, birds, cattle, rabbits, cats, and grizzly bear cubs. It's possible but unverified that John Quincy Adams kept an alligator in the East Room for a time. A gift from the returning hero and everyone's favorite fighting Frenchman, the Marquis de Lafayette. But it's the long, seldom broken line of chief executive canines that evokes rich stories and lively personalities, including some presidential dogs that never set paw in the White House. Let's start with the revolution. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Not paying that royalty. In October 1777, American troops under General George Washington made a surprise attack on Germantown outside of Philadelphia. After a cluttered exchange of fire, the Americans were repulsed, but not before a stray dog wandered into the rebels' camp. It was a fox terrier belonging to the British commander, General William Howe. Tradition has it that Washington was strongly urged to leverage the find into some sort of concession from Howe, but Washington, ever the gentleman, refused and had the dog returned to his counterpart under a flag of truce. And with it, a note 
Among Washington's papers today is a draft of the letter in the hand of his military aide, Alexander Hamilton. Hey, hey, hey! We talked about this. The letter read, General Washington's compliments to General Howe. He does himself the pleasure to return him a dog, which accidentally fell into his hands, and by the inscription on the collar appears to belong to General Howe. Yes, George Washington was a dog lover and a serious breeder. The Washington of Mount Vernon was in so many ways the English lord of the manor. There were a great many dogs kept at his estate's kennel, though hounds seemed to win most of the general's attention. Washington was a keen fox hunter. Over the years, friends and admirers had sent him various hounds. French hounds by way of the Marquis de Lafayette, hounds from Philadelphia and from England. Over time, Washington's kennel was instrumental in bringing forth today's American foxhound. Le Havre, France. Only a fool would wander the storm-ravaged coast on this night in the fall of 1789. And there he is. But he's no fool. He's Thomas Jefferson, the guy peering over Washington's shoulder on Mount Rushmore, fresh from wrapping up his gig as America's minister to France. The next day, he sails to the newly minted Republic. But first, he's on a mission. He's combing the countryside in search of French sheepdogs to bring back to his beloved Monticello. And it's not going well. He walked 10 miles, he would complain in a letter, clambering the cliffs in quest of the shepherds. During the most furious tempest of wind and rain I was ever in, the journey was fruitless. The next day, Jefferson found his dog, a pregnant Briard named Berger. Weeks later, he landed in America with Berger and her two pups. Augmented by Briards later sent by Lafayette, it's believed they are the foundation of the breed in the United States. This feels like a good time for un breed biographie due case. Professor? Since the time of Charlemagne, the Briard has been working the rich dairy pastures of northern France. Its name is taken from the region of Brie, home to the eponymous fromage. Briards are known for their wavy coat of either gray, tawny, or black, with a peekaboo hairdo parted naturally in the middle. It was no coincidence that Thomas Jefferson sought out this breed. Briards are highly trainable and smart with a protective eye towards family, especially kids whom they regard as their flock. Briards are large, tireless dogs, as burly and rugged as they are nimble. Two, it is said, can handle 700 head of sheep. Given the trouble Jefferson took to import his Briards, there are two ironies to this story. First, there were very few sheep to tend. Under Britain's Wool Act, the British had prohibited the export of wool from the colonies and levied a stiff tax on its sale. Second, Thomas Jefferson didn't much like dogs. In 1811, when a fellow landowner asked him to support a scheme to reduce the canine population, Jefferson wrote, Dear Sir, I participate in all your hostility to dogs and would readily join in any plan for exterminating the whole race. 
I consider them as the most afflicting of all follies for which men tax themselves. Jefferson even proposed a law that dogs wear a collar bearing their master's name and that the master be responsible for its conduct. Now, however sour he was on dogs, Jefferson did like money. He knew that the end of British rule meant the end of the Wool Act, which had all but stifled America's wool industry in favor of Britain. Now, Americans would be raising a lot more sheep, and there would be a demand for first-class herding dogs. His Briards were a shrewd choice. Though there's no evidence that Jefferson's herders roamed the White House, dogs had already taken their place here at old 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Hey, it's open. <laughs> That's 1803 for you. Hello? Prior to Jefferson, John Adams had become the second president, but the first to inhabit the White House then called the Executive Mansion. When he and First Lady Abigail Adams moved in, they brought their two mixed-breed dogs, Juno and Satan. Through the first century and change of America's existence, more presidents than not were dog owners. And if it's all the same to you, we're going to breeze through presidents 4 through 28. Yeah, well, okay, we'll make one stop. Uh, hold it, Josh. We've got to make one stop in Springfield, Illinois. It's February 11th, 1861, and that tall guy hopping on the train is Abe Lincoln off to Washington. Not making the trip is his dog, a beloved mixed breed best remembered for his name, Fido, and very possibly Canine Zero in the story of this famous dog name, a name derived from the Latin Fidus, meaning trusty or faithful. As a self-taught lawyer, it's easy to imagine Lincoln coming across quite a few such Latin terms. Fido would never see the White House. Lincoln chose to leave him with a family friend in Springfield. Both died suddenly just a few months apart. With few exceptions, presidents and dogs were the norm. But the role of first dog as we know it today really begins with an Airedale Terrier named Laddie Boy, whose owner was this guy, Warren Gamaliel Harding. Greater assurance is found in the exchanges of simple honesty and direction among men resolved to accomplish as becomes leaders among nations. This tall, athletic terrier, Laddie Boy, not the president, moved into the White House the day after Harding's inauguration, and that week appeared in the first of thousands of press stories, some of which Laddie Boy wrote himself. Please note the air quotes. Laddie Boy was the bright, likable counterbalance to the troubled president whom Gore Vidal would describe as a toothpick-chomping philanderer. ever cabinet meeting of the Harding administration was unexpectedly interrupted by a welcome visitor, the President's Airedale Terrier, Laddie Boy, who happily took up a seat and joined the meeting. The 20s was a transformative time in media and for America's relationship with dogs. Rin Tin Tin and Braveheart became human-like screen heroes, like people. Canines, once consigned to the yard, moved indoors to take place as four-legged family members. 
laddie boy of Toledo's Caswell Kennels was no exception. He bypassed the White House kennels, yes, they had kennels then, and claimed his place in both the West Wing and the residence. Washington, laddie boy qualified as White House messenger as well as mascot today, carrying the morning papers to President Harding at the breakfast table. In the White House and across America, dogs migrated from the shed to the bed. When President Harding died in 1923, his famous Airedale Terrier was adopted by the Secret Service agent charged with watching him. By the end of the decade, radio had become an indispensable part of millions of American households. You from the Ritz Theater in New York City, starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Embracing new media became a job requirement for presidents. office of president of the United States. And I am certain that on this day, my fellow Americans... And in the 30s, Franklin Roosevelt became the first to master radio. That the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. FDR had many dogs. A bull mastiff named Blaze, two Irish setters named Jack and Jill... He had an English setter, a German shepherd dog, and a Great Dane. But ingrained in history is the memory of the Scottish terrier he was given in 1940. Named Murray the Outlaw of Falla Hill after a Scottish ancestor, he'd been known to the president and to America as Falla. Scotties being known as compact dogs with a vivid personality and high spirits and a human sort of dignity... Fallow was made for media. Never more so than in September 1944. On the House floor, Congressman John Knudsen of Minnesota rose to repeat a rumor, hard as that is to believe, that during the president's recent trip to the Aleutian Islands off Alaska, Fallow was left behind and that the president had dispatched a destroyer from Seattle to fetch him, tying up war resources at great expense to the taxpayers, and where a lesser politician would retreat to damage mode, Roosevelt played it like a Stradivarius. On September 23rd, he gave this speech to labor leaders in Washington. According to that technique, you should never use a small falsehood. Always a big one, for its very fantastic nature would make it more credible. If only you keep repeating it over and over and over again. (laughs) These Republican leaders have not been content with attacks on me or on my wife or on my son. No, not content with that. They now include my little dog, Fallon. It would forever be known as the Fallon speech. Well, of course, I don't resent attacks. And my family don't resent attacks. But Fallon does resent attacks. <laughs> And being a Scotty, 
<laughs> as soon as he learned that the Republican fiction writers in Congress and out had concocted a story that I'd left him behind on an Aleutian island <laughs> and had sent a destroyer back to find him at a cost to the taxpayers of two or three or eight or twenty million dollars, his Scott soul was furious. <laughs> he has not been the same dog since. <laughs> I am accustomed to hearing malicious falsehoods about myself, but I think I have a right to resent, to object the libelous statements about my dog. <laughs> Six weeks later, Fowler defeated Thomas Dewey by three and a half million votes. In 1952, a call came into the office of California Senator Richard Nixon. It was a traveling salesman from Texas named Lou Carroll with a strange request. Carroll had heard that the senator's daughters, Tricia and Julie, had badly wanted a puppy, and his cocker spaniel had recently whelped the litter. Could he ship one of the puppies to the senator? After checking, the senator's assistant, yes, Rosemary Woods, said yes, and arrangements were made. I for president, I for president, I for president, I for president. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike. For president, hang out the banner, beat the drum. As running mate to Dwight Eisenhower, Nixon's candidacy was in the weeds. Stories emerged of a fund started by supporters to help pay his political expenses. The phrase secret fund was trending or would have if there had been trending back then. More damaging still was Eisenhower's reluctance to spring to Nixon's defense. That's when Nixon, who greatly admired Franklin Roosevelt's media savvy, decided to go on television. On September 23rd, seven years to the day after FDR immortalized Fowler, Nixon gave what he called the fund speech. My fellow Americans, I come before you tonight as a candidate for the vice presidency. After a painfully detailed recitation of the Nixon's personal finances and holdings, the senator played the dog card. A man down in Texas heard Pat in the radio mention the fact that our two youngsters would like to have a dog. And believe it or not, the day before we left on this campaign trip, we got a message from the Union Station in Baltimore saying they had a package for us. We went down to get it. You know what it was? It was a little cocker spaniel dog in a crate that he'd sent all the way from Texas. Black and white, spotted. And our little girl, Tricia, the six-year-old, named it Checkers. And you know, the kids, like all kids, love the dog. And I just want to say this right now, that regardless of what they say about it, we're going to keep it. Seen today through the lens of Watergate, it's easy to forget that almost single-handedly the two-month-old Cocker Spaniel had saved the Nixon candidacy. Through their Norman Rockwell-colored glasses, Americans couldn't resist the image of the little dog playing with the senator's young daughters. The subsequent outpouring of approval allowed the newly humanized Nixon to remain on the ticket. Ironically, 
the dog who saved the presidential ticket, would never set a paw in the White House. Living to the ripe old age of 12, Checkers died in 1964, four years before Nixon won the presidency. His White House dog would be an Irish setter named King Timahoe. On Thanksgiving Day, 1966, a woman was driving along a Texas highway en route to her family's home when she saw a mixed-breed dog walking along the road. When she called, it came to her. At a nearby filling station, she was told it didn't belong to anyone in the area. So she brought him along to her family's home and introduced it to her father. She was Lucy Nugent. Her father was President Lyndon Baines Johnson. She has a love for dogs too, and brought him to me when she came to Thanksgiving. In a post-presidential recording, Johnson would recall. We left word that if the owner ever asked about him, to direct him here. But I'm glad that the, the owner never missed him, because I surely would if he left me. To punctuate the point, the president and Yuki then performed a duet. Don't ever doubt that America is the land of canine opportunity. One day you're a four-legged drifter on a Texas highway, the next you're asleep on the floor of the Oval Office. By then, the president well understood the White House press corps' appetite for a dog story. Four years earlier, he had endured the him incident. The suffix gate wasn't a thing yet. On an April day in 1964, Johnson showed off his beagles, him and her, to reporters. The president then took him by the ears and raised the dog off its front paws, causing him to yip. Nationwide, dog lovers yipped, their disapproval, a sound which would resonate through his presidency. Today, it's White House custom for dogs to take their place as celebrities. Gerald Ford had his golden retriever, Liberty. George H.W. Bush's English Springer Spaniel, Millie, became a best-selling author. George W. Bush's Scottish Terriers, Barney and Miss Beasley, became White House videographers. Hello, Chicago! For Barack Obama, dogs were more than pets. To his daughters, they had become a campaign promise. Sasha and Malia, I love you both more than you can imagine. And you have earned the new puppy that's coming with us to the White House. A few months later, the first family welcomed Bo, a Portuguese water dog, a gift from Senator Ted Kennedy. Sonny joined the family four years later. This breed of dog is energetic and very biddable, meaning it's easy to train and eager to please. A White House deal breaker may have been its coat. These are hypoallergenic dogs producing no dander, which took care of the first family's allergy issues. Which brings us back here to the White House. Dogless, not for the first time. But for the first time in some seven decades, since Harry Truman. 
The diplomatic reception room on the ground floor, and the blue room in my study on the second floor are all overrooms. Seems the 33rd president took a Jeffersonian view of dogs. When an admirer gave him a cocker spaniel puppy called Feller, Truman promptly gave it away to his physician, which effectively busts the myth that Harry Truman originated the quote, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. The history of presidential dogs falls into two eras. Through the first half of our history, dogs were important to presidents. Through the second half, they've also been important to the presidency. In the media age, a first dog is a photo op, a social media magnet, and an effective means of humanizing a first family, and almost always with a popularity rating that their commander-in-chief could only dream of. Down and Back, Tales from the AKC Archives. Visit akc.org to learn more about all things dog and find bonus materials for this episode. Follow us on Instagram at American Kennel Club, on Twitter at AKC Dog Lovers, and let us know what you thought of the show. Founded many, many dog years ago, AKC is the recognized and trusted expert in breed, health, and training info. AKC is all about responsible dog ownership and dedicated to advancing dog sports. No humans were harmed while making this show. Thank you.